The reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amil, from Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Thank you, Brian, very much. Okay. Palm Sunday. What, what is, what's the big deal with Palm Sunday? What's that all about? Uh, it actually began in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God makes a covenant with King David. And he says to him, I will establish through you a kingdom that will never end. And so Palm Sunday, Jesus Christ comes riding into Jerusalem. And it is the coronation of the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. That's what Palm Sunday is. It is a fulfillment of the covenant that began in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So why did we read 2 Samuel chapter 9? We read 2 Samuel chapter 9 because it is also about a very important covenant. Matter of fact, as Brian was reading that, maybe you noticed that the word kindness was used constantly. In the English language, kindness is a little bit of a limp word, all right? Kind, okay, that's good. Much more powerful in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word called hesed, and it means covenant love. And so what David is saying here, is there anybody that I can show covenant love to? Which is the reason we are focusing on 2 Samuel chapter 9 today. You might be thinking, my goodness, an entire chapter in the Bible devoted to David's relationship with this guy with a really funny name by the name of Mephibosheth. And if you're like me on just a surface reading, you'd have to say to yourself, my goodness, Lord, could we not have uh, eliminated this chapter? I don't really know how much I'm getting from this about this relationship with Mephibosheth. Could we have eliminated that and maybe had a few more details about creation? That would have been helpful. Or how about a whole chapter about how to get a good date? But why, why must we eat the whole chapter on this guy by the name of Mephibosheth? Because what you find in this chapter is the story of the entire Bible, wrapped up 
in this one chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you'll look in here and you'll think about it and you'll go below the surface, you'll plumb the depths of it, the entire Bible is summed up in 2 Samuel chapter 9. A few things to say and then we'll dig into it. First thing is this. Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul. All of Saul's family, the entire family, all of them were enemies of David. Enemies of David. When you have a king who's in power and a different family, a different dynasty comes into power, what do you do? You kill everybody of the old family. If you don't kill them all, they pose a great risk to you. Because they could rise up against your kingdom. And so David, obviously, everybody's expecting this. Everybody's expecting this. This is just business. It's nothing personal. It's just business. We're going to kill you. All of you. And so they're all running and they're all fleeing from David and his men because they all want them dead, right? Well, beyond the fact that it was just business, there was a personal nature to this whole thing. Because King Saul, who was Mephibosheth's grandfather, he had hunted David down like a dog and who had humiliated him for years. So yes, it's business, but it was also personal. And there was another, there's another twist to this whole crazy thing. When David, when David was going to attack Jerusalem to take it as his capital of the kingdom, we're told that the people who were in Jerusalem, the Jebusites, were standing up on the wall, and they look down, and they start taunting David. They said, you know what? Even blame, uh, lame and blind people, lame and blind people could ward you off because you're absolutely nothing. They taunted him, and he didn't like it very much. And so he told his soldiers a strategy of how to win, and in that strategy he says, so go up there and take down, and he calls them lame and blind. Take down those crippled people. And from that point on, 2 Samuel chapter 5, a rumor went out through the entire country that David despised blind and lame crippled people. So not only, not only is Mephibosheth dealing with this fact that he is hated both on a business level and a personal level, but, but David, but David hates him because he is lame. And the reason he is lame is because, 2 Samuel 4, 4, this is what it says. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And when the child's nurse heard the news, she packed up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. So he is crippled because of David, and David despises There's all kinds of things just keeping upon him that he is this despised enemy of David, and he's living in a place called Lodabar, which is a very barren place. Let me ask you something. What rumors have you heard about God? Mephibosheth had heard this rumor about David. David represents God in this story, right? He heard the rumor that he's hated. He's heard the rumor that David has done this to him, and he's bitter, and he's living in a barren place. And I think, how many times in our own lives do we live like in a place of bitterness, our own place of bitterness? Because we believe something about God. We believe a rumor that's not true. And here's where we find Mephibosheth living in this rumor. Oh, many people uh, have heard said that God is a God of judgment and wrath. He's a God of judgment and wrath. And you know what? He is. He is. He is. He is a God of judgment and wrath. There's no way around it, everybody. There's hundreds of scriptures that prove that point. He is a God of judgment and wrath. 
I'd like to sugarcoat it for you, but there's too many scriptures I can't. Other people have heard that God is a God of mercy and forgiveness and of grace. He is. There's hundreds of scriptures about that. Well, how do you put those two things, those contradictory remarks, how do you bring them together? You know what it says in Hosea 4, 6? It says these words. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Why do I read you that verse? Because this, until we figure out how these two contradictory things come together, until we figure out how these two contradictory things come together, we will never understand God. We will never experience something that we all want. And here's what we all want. Meaningful acceptance meaningful acceptance. And that's what I want to talk about today. How do we experience something we all desire? Meaningful acceptance. The covenant brings these two together. Two things I'd like to tell you about David from this story. The first thing is that David searches for his enemy. He searches for his enemy. Mephibosheth is hiding out in this barren place and David begins to search for him. It's important to note that while Mephibosheth is an enemy of David, that David goes searching for him. He's hiding in Lodabar. Isn't it so natural, everyone, that we, that we, we hide? You think about Adam and Eve in the beginning and the very first sin, the very first breaking of the covenant, how they went into hiding. This is natural. Whether our sins are many or their sins are few, it is natural for us to go into hiding, to hide But we will never understand meaningful acceptance as long as we are hiding either from God or from ourselves, acknowledging who we are. Romans 5.10 says this, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Reason we have an entire chapter here about the relationship of David with Mephibosheth is because it reflects God's relationship with us. The first thing we need to know is that David is searching. Now, listen, sometimes when we, when we are experiencing uh, maybe a time in our life where we think that we have drifted a long way from God, it is only natural for us to think to ourselves, well, God is disinterested in us. Right? We have drifted, we've done some things, God's really upset with me, he's disinterested in me. Jesus tells the story of the 100 sheep, right? And he's got the one that's gone way off and the shepherd who is God goes looking for the one sheep. Here's the thing that's really fascinating about this. When we maybe have drifted really far, it's when God is searching for us the most. And maybe it's those times when we're not searching for God the most, but he's searching for us the most. And so this is what it says here. David searches. Second thing is David accepts his enemy. He accepts him. But Phibosheth, we're told here, comes in and it says he bows down. The word means to prostrate. It means, in other words, you got to think about this guy. He's been crippled since he was five years old. He's bitter. He's hurting. And he comes in, boom. He just lays on the ground and he's shaking before David. David says, hey, look, look, don't be afraid. Take it easy. He's trembling by what is getting ready to happen to him. He thinks that David is about ready to kill him, and he's shaking. And what does David do to him? He says, look, calm down. Don't be afraid. You should be my enemy, but you're not. You should be rejected, but you're not. Why? Because Mephibosheth, I just love you so much. You're just absolutely awesome, and I forgive you. That's not what he says. This has nothing to do. Hey, everybody, here's the important point. It has nothing to do with Mephibosheth. Why did he do this? 
It has everything to do with Jonathan, the person that he entered in the covenant with. David and Jonathan. Do you ever wonder? As you, if you, maybe, maybe, maybe you've read the story of David. There's so much in there. Um, and maybe you've wondered to yourself, why? Now, why in the world would David act the very strange way that he does? I'll give you two, right? So Ishbosheth, he was Jonathan's brother, also Saul's son. And after Saul and Jonathan die, there's this civil war that breaks out between the house of David and the house of Ishbosheth. They're fighting with each other. Ishbosheth is trying to kill David so he can secure the kingdom for himself. And the bitter battle and words going back and forth, you know, all the stuff that involves in warfare. And one day, some assassins show up at Ishbosheth's house. And they kill Ishbosheth, the enemy of David. And they cut his head off. And they take his head and they go back to David. And here they are, proudly standing, holding up his head. This is an awesome scene, right? Here he is, David. And what are they expecting, the assassins? They're like expecting David to come running. Oh my gosh, you secured me the kingdom. Just, I, this is incredible. And then David with the strangest behaviors. Weird, man. He says, why would you do this? What do you mean, why would you do this? Why would you? He's the enemy. That's why we did this. You're king now, man. All your enemies are, we, here he is, boom, right? He's, why would you do this? And so you know what he does to the guys who kill Ishbosheth, his enemy? He kills them. Why would he kill him? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Why would he do that? Let me give you another one. When Saul dies, he's up on the mountain and he dies. Fascinating. The reason Saul lost the kingdom is God told him to wipe out the Amalekites. Who kills Saul? An Amalekite. That ought to be, you know, sometimes God leads us to do something. We don't do it. And that very thing that we shouldn't, we should have done and we didn't do comes back and bites us, right? So anyway, that's another story. So, this guy kills King Saul, and he comes to tell David, hey, the kingdom is yours. And he's expecting a reward. And you know what he gets? He gets death. Why? Have you ever asked yourself, so why did David do that? Do you know why he did that? Because he had made a covenant with Jonathan. And when Jonathan made the covenant with him, he says, this includes all of my family for all generations. You know what the enemies of David could have done who were in the household of Saul when Saul died and David becomes king? You know what they, they could have all come out of hiding and they could have run up to David and they could have wrapped their arms around them without fear whatsoever. They could have knocked on the palace door and said, you know, I'm here to eat dinner. Open up, baby. Here I am. You know why? Because he had to, because he made a covenant, not because of them, but because of Jonathan. That's the power of the covenant. And we see here that David accepts his enemy, not because of his enemy Mephibosheth, but because of Jonathan. Look what he does. He gives him his land. He says, look, I'm going to give you all your land. You know what? Land was in the first covenant with Adam and Eve. I'm going to give you all your land. And he says, I'm going to give you a bunch of servants. Now, he's been living in this barren place, impoverished, hurting, and bitter. He says, I'm going to give you 36 servants who are going to wait on you hand and foot. And you're going to be just like one of my sons. You're going to eat at the king's table. Mephibosheth had heard rumors about God all of his life. I mean, he'd heard rumors about David and how David felt about him. And all of that is wiped away. The fact that Mephibosheth is the enemy and that everybody, here it is, and that everybody, including himself, expects that he is to die, makes his acceptance 
by David far more meaningful. And that's why we have this chapter, meaningful acceptance. Two things I want to tell you. You ever heard that God is love? If you'd like to write that down, it's very important. You ever heard somebody say these words? Well, I believe in a God of love. I've heard that so many times. Well, 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 I believe in a God of love. And what I found in asking people, what, could you explain what you mean when you say, I believe in a God of love? What I found is what people say back to me when I ask them to explain it is they say, well, I believe that God just accepts everybody, right? I mean, isn't that true that God accepts everybody? Do you know the biblical answer to that? The biblical answer is no, which is startling, startling. No, God doesn't accept everybody. Everybody, a covenant, ready? A covenant is a contract. It's a binding life or death agreement. Covenants and contracts, wake up lawyers, ready? A covenant and a contract have rules and penalties, ready? Without the rules and penalties, the contract or the covenant is meaningless. Why would you have it? Why have it? If you don't have it, get rid of all the laws and we can get rid of all the lawyers. Okay? Now, uh, if you're a lawyer, right, uh, maybe you, you could go to a lawyer. Anybody here who has a lawyer as a friend or you know a lawyer that's in this room, you could ask them, what would it be like to live in a lawless society? Without penalties, without rules, there's no reason for contract. It's meaningless. The rules and the penalty give meaning to the contract or the covenant. They give, actually give great meaning to the contract and the covenant. When you have the bite of the law and the acceptance of God, it makes God's grace, his covenant with us, infinitely more meaningful. Meaningless acceptance is what nobody wants. Meaningless acceptance is what nobody wants. Oh, sure. Just come on in. It's all forgiven. Is that like, oh, that really touches my heart. I don't care what you did. I don't care how many rules that you broke. I don't care that you broke all my commands. I don't care that you broke one command or a thousand commands. Come on, come right on in. Is that meaningful to us? It's not meaningful. It's not meaningful at all. Meaningful acceptance touches our heart. Second thing, God is law. So God is love and God is law. The law is all the rules. <laughs> it's all the penalties. The last week, we talked about the fact that, you know, <clears throat> They bow down and they worship this golden calf after they said, we will fully obey everything that you have said in your law. We'll do absolutely everything that you say. I want to read a verse to you. It's not on the screen. It's not on your, it's nowhere. You'll just have to listen to it. But it's just, it's very striking after they have broken all of these. Listen closely. Deuteronomy 29, 19 and 20. When such a person who breaks any of the rules, right? Here's the words of this oath, the covenant. And they invoke a blessing on themselves thinking. Now notice this. Notice this, everybody. I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. They will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. And then here it comes. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. (laughs) Did you hear that? The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. 
all the curses written in the book will fall on them and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. Whoa, that's serious. And now here's how I deal with that, right? I say to myself, well, okay, God must just be talking about the big sins, right? Because he couldn't be talking about everything. Is that what God is talking? I can't tell you how many people over my life have said, you know what, you know, I know that I don't do 100%, but, you know, I don't do this and that. Because if I did this and that, well, then we'd have a problem. And anybody who's doing this and that, and they name them to me, whatever this and that are, because they have those particular things that they feel are like the big sins. If I do this and that, well, then I know that I'm out, but I'm not doing this and that. I'm just doing these other things, and they're just like minor sins, and God's just like, I'm all cool with that. Is God all cool with that? Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 13. Look at this. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. You know what the word blameless means? That means 100%. You're obeying, 100%. You know what Jesus Christ says in Matthew 5, 48? Check this out. This is really tough. Be perfect. Well, doesn't get more clear than that. Be perfect. There's, there's God's expectation of you. Be perfect. How many people here are perfect? Who wants to raise their hand? Oh, I saw a hand up there. My goodness. Guy was sleeping. I told him to raise his hand. He raised his hand. All right. Okay. All right. Be perfect. Be perfect. None of us are perfect. You know why we know that? Because the Bible tells us none of us are perfect. So now we have a problem. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why does the Bible say the law is a curse? You know why the law is a curse? Because nobody can fulfill it. None of us can fulfill it. None of us can fulfill it. So it's a curse. There's only one person that has obeyed the law perfectly, and his name is Jesus Christ. Write this last one down with me because I think it's helpful, and then I'll try to tie some thoughts together. Law, I mean love, without law is meaninglessness. Love, without law is meaninglessness. In other words, everyone... For the person who just thinks, oh, man, I serve a God, I serve a God of of love, man, he just accepts everybody no matter what you do. There's not a lot of meaning to that relationship with God. It's really quite weak. It's not power. It doesn't give us what we're looking for. Now, here's, let's go to the other side of the coin. Law without love is hopelessness. Law without love is hopelessness because nobody can be perfect. So now what are we left with? We're left with the covenant. And now I want to share with you what it is that everybody wants. In Luke chapter 7, everyone, uh, there is a story, true story, that is told about Jesus Christ. And he is in a religious leader's home. And the leader of the home, very religious person, very devout, obeys much the law. We know nobody can obey all the law, but obeys much the law. Jesus Christ comes into his home. And the man doesn't, he's not really thrilled that Jesus is there, doesn't do a huge welcome for him, nothing like that. He's not really moved. He's not really inspired by the presence of Jesus Christ in his own home, though he's seen this this man, the son of God, Jesus, perform all kinds of miracles, but it doesn't do much for him. And during the course of their dinner that night, a woman walks in. Now, the whole town knows the woman. The whole town knows the woman. And they all know she's a big-time sinner. And she comes up to Jesus, and she bows down before him. What is normal, what is standard procedure back in those days is when you went to somebody's home for dinner, they would, somebody would wash the feet. That's what you would just do. But nobody had washed Jesus' feet because they weren't really moved that Jesus was there. And this woman bows down, and with her tears, she washes his feet. And with her hair, she dries them. 
And they say, Jesus, if you were really a prophet, you would know that this woman is a sinner and you would not allow her to even touch you. And Jesus says this, this is very powerful. To whom much is forgiven. To whom much is forgiven. Now, he says to them, when I came in, you've done, you've done nothing. You didn't even offer me a bowl for me to wash my own feet. It meant nothing that I'm in your home. But this woman has been crying and she has washed my feet with her tears and dried my feet with her hair. That is meaningful acceptance. That's meaningful acceptance. She had known that she was received. Have you experienced something as powerful as that in your life? I'd like to read you something from Martin Luther, a person who many years ago's life was completely transformed. I read this the other day. I thought it was absolutely awesome. This is what Martin Luther says. Listen. You must be overwhelmed by the frightful wrath of God who so hated sin that he spared not his only begotten son. What can the sinner expect if the beloved son was so afflicted? The whole value of the meditation of the suffering of Christ lies in this. And here it comes. Ready? That man should come to the knowledge of himself and sink and tremble. If you are so hardened that you do not tremble, then you have reason to tremble. Pray to God that he may soften your heart and make fruitful your meditation upon the suffering of Christ. For we of ourselves, ready for this? We of ourselves are incapable of proper reflection unless God instills it. In other words, one of the greatest gifts we could ever receive is that we would say, God, would you help me to understand who I am before you? But if one does not meditate rightly on the suffering of Christ for a day, an hour, or even a quarter of an hour, this we may confidently say is better than a whole year of fasting, singing psalms of praise to God for days and days, or even going to 100 masses. What is being said here is that once you understand your own position before God, it's better than going to church for 100 days. Think about that. <clears throat> he concludes by saying this. Because this reflection changes the whole man and makes him new. Famous story in the Bible of Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Sorry. You got an older son and you got a younger son. It's so clear that the younger son is a sinner, isn't it? He goes out. And the Bible says, riotous living. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty clear what's going on here, right? So when he comes back, he's like, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I had no problems with that. So the fact that he's accepted, he's just thrilled. And notice again, the father says, come on in and eat, eat at my table. That's meaningful acceptance. That's meaningful. Now you have an older brother. An older brother, he's a good guy. The acceptance of the father was so meaningless to him. The father says, please come in and eat. He's like, I'm not interested in going in and eat. 
for those of us, whether our sins and our opinion are great or few, if we have not acknowledged that we have broken and we are enemies before God, that we've broken the covenant, whether we've broken it one time or a million times, if we have not come to that understanding, the revelation of God is, oh God, reveal to me who I really am in my sin before you, there is nothing I can say or anybody else would ever say that would make the acceptance of God meaningful in your life. And that's a great disadvantage for somebody who, like me, I'm an older brother. Right? I've been at this game a long time, and I've learned to conform to most of the rules. Nobody conforms to all of them. People say to me all the time, hey, I'm spiritually stuck. I'm spiritually stuck. Well, you know the quickest way to get spiritually unstuck? You ever seen somebody who's spiritually unstuck? They're like thrilled. Oh my gosh, I can't believe God's forgiven me. But what about the person who doesn't feel they've really done much? Can they not have a meaningful acceptance? The only way that we can have a meaningful acceptance, like the Apostle Paul, who conformed himself to the law more than anybody else in this room, and he tells us about that, and he says he is just overjoyed with the meaningful acceptance of God, that his heart is overflowing, that he counts it when people beat him and spit on him and throw him into jail. He's like, praise God, hallelujah, I can't believe how much I've been forgiven. How could he do that? It is only in the covenant, everybody, that we can understand and experience all the transforming power. We talk about the Bible all the time. Today's Palm Sunday. We're almost to the highest, holiest day of the year. Does it bother you that your heart does not burn and you're excited? You're like, oh, I'm overjoyed. Our world is so commitment phobic, isn't it? There's been so many pieces in the press written about this. I was listening to one just the other day by a University of Virginia professor. And he said, the first time in his life, he's never dealt with students who are so commitment phobic. Hey, you ask them on a Friday, hey, what are you doing? I have no idea on a Friday night, five o'clock, I don't know. And then they give you a whole litany of ideas that are out there that they might do. And then when they finally do and decide to go somewhere to a party or whatever, you know what they're doing? They're on the phone the whole time and they're texting their friends because now they're, 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 they have buyer's remorse. They're like, I wish I was at that party with you because it's probably a better party than where I am. And I see people do that all the time. They're someplace and they wish they were another place. We have a hard time committing. We're signing up for community groups today. And you know what? I know a bunch of us are going to walk past those tables and think, you know, I'm not sure I could sign up for a Tuesday night group. What if something better comes up? <laughs> because something better comes up on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. There's no way I could go to it. But have you ever met the person who has realized the depth of their sin, that they are an enemy of God, that they are Mephibosheth or the woman in Luke chapter 7, wiping Jesus' feet. You know what? They're like, how could I not commit after all that God has done for me? Here's a great gift for us this morning. The greatest gift I could ever share with you. You would think that giving a revelation of all of our sins in here, older brothers at the greatest disadvantaged, obviously, you would think getting a revelation of that would be painful. It's actually glorious. You would think it would involve self-loathing. Oh, I'm just a terrible person. But it doesn't. It actually results in us, our self-awareness, just soaring to the skies, to heaven. My God, you have done this for me. If this Easter season, if this Easter season, 
you're tired of meaningless acceptance and you're tired of just like going through the motions. Oh, it's Easter again. I'm going to go through the motions. I want to encourage you with this in the conclusion of the service. Say to God, could you give me that gift? Could you make me aware? Could you instill in me the understanding, as Martin Luther says, of my own sin? My own sin. You know what the church in America is known best for? Why people say they don't go to church? Because the church is judgmental. Judgmental. I don't go to church because it's full of judgmental people. You know what's interesting? The younger brother in the story, the prodigal son, the one that really knew his sin, I mean, he had his head down and he was just thrilled that he was accepted. And you know what the older brother does? He's like, he's not thinking about his own problems. He's like, isn't he? Here's one way that I know that I'm beginning to get it, like the Apostle Paul, though nowhere close. I become much less interested in everybody else's sin and far more thrilled that Almighty God, because of Jesus Christ, has accepted me, a sinner, an enemy of God, as me. Are you Mephibosheth? Do you know that you're Mephibosheth? Do you know that you're an enemy of God? Can you say that today? I'm an enemy of God, but he has accepted me. Until we can, there's no meaningful acceptance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to a very solemn but important point in the covenant story today. Something, God, that if we can grasp it, if you would be so gracious as to help us understand it, like if you would come down and with revelation on every heart and mind here today, it would so transform our spiritual walk with you. We would understand the joy and the excitement of meaningful acceptance. But God, unless we're willing, and unless you do, we're stuck. We're stuck with apathy and a meaningless acceptance. But God, there's so much more. There's so much more. So, Lord, as we just quietly pray here before you, God, would you reveal it? Would you burst on the scene of our mind and help us to understand how we are all Mephibosheths? And would it bring such excitement to our souls to know that because of Jesus Christ, that even though we're enemies, you've taken us in. Everybody, let's just take 30 seconds to just an attitude of prayer. And I want to ask you to consider saying, God, could you help me to see this truth? Maybe your spiritual life is extremely boring. Extremely boring. Well, here's the way to add some fire to it. God, reveal it to me. Let's just take 30 seconds of pray. I thank you for your mercy and for your kindness I thank you that you did for us what we did not deserve and I ask God that throughout this entire holy week that is before us 
that every day you would reveal more and more. The fact that we are your enemies because we have broken the law, but Jesus, you, because of you, are so gracious. Would you reveal that to our hearts more and more every day? In your holy name, amen. God bless everybody. We have a prayer team over here and grace and five on this wall. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.